Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. We start our podcast this week with our masks on because even though we don't, I'm taking it off. We are uh, socially distanced, physically distanced in these things. It may look like we're close, but we're like more than six feet apart. Um, I'm really excited about uh, not only this week, but next week, the episode that we're doing, really the interview that we're going to do with Mark Boom uh, has a lot of great information in it, and we have turned this into two episodes. So this week, we're going to be visiting with Mark. Uh, Matt and I are going to be doing that, and we're joined by Joseph Clam, who still has his mask on. He was our executive pastor, but Joseph's also on the board of trustees, the school board here for Spring Branch Independent School District. And so while the first uh, episode today will be about uh, the virus and what's going on and updating us on all the relevant information, the second part, which will be next week, will be about schools reopening, regathering in worship. And so I invited Joseph to be a part of that conversation since he's really involved in all of that. So I'm really excited uh, that you're going to get to hear Mark and all of us just share some information uh, about all that's going on. Yeah, I think that would be a good place for us to yeah. start right now is, you know, when we talked to you last, it was very early. I think last time we did this was very early in the in all of this. And so we've been through, man, a lot yeah. since then. And so why don't you just kind of give everybody sort of a, of an overview of where we are in Houston, where we are with all of this as far as the numbers. And, and we'll just kind of ask them some questions as we go along here about that. Sure. Well, we're, you know, we're thankfully in a much better place than we've been, but we've got a long way to go. So mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to feel like we're, we're out of the woods because we're not even remotely so. Um, but, you know, from a community basis, um, you know, what we all saw was we got through May pretty well. Uh, and then it really started getting out of control post Memorial Day uh, and into June and the second half of June, things just exploded. So put that in perspective at, at somewhere like Houston Methodist, 2,300 beds across uh, seven hospitals plus a, plus a long-term acute care hospital, which we've also been using some specific for COVID. So eight locations around the city. Uh, you know, we had 207 known positives, probably 250 at peak. Uh, you know, during that first wave with some people being worked up and that kind of thing. So we were using about 250 of our 2,300 beds. Uh, this second time around, we got up to using 750 plus. So, you know, very dramatic rise. And in between, we had gotten down to about 85 to 100. So we went up by more than seven, almost, still, you know, pushing eightfold, actually, um, you know, that, that second time around. And that was... Uh, very, very challenging um, and really, frankly, didn't change in the community until the masking order happened. There's no question in my mind that the masking order and, and honestly, some behaviors that go along with that, because I think it sends a strong message, um, you know, got things um, starting to be under control. But we spent most of Ju- July from a hospital perspective, sort of treading water at that 700 to 750 range. So really tough on our staff, uh, very dramatic, uh, you know, use of hospital beds, you know, unit after unit after unit across the system getting converted just for patients with COVID. Uh, but thankfully a couple of weeks ago, turned the corner and, you know, have come down now into about the 470, 480 range. So, you know, we're down 25% or so from peak. Um, you know, which is a, a, a very good thing, actually a little more than 25, but, but somewhere in that range. Um, 
you know, that's obviously a very, very good thing. Yeah. Um, but we've uh, got a long, long way to go. And the thing that concerns us is the testing data in the community leveled off long before the hospitals did, as we would have expected to, <laughs> since the hospitalizations lag. But it's just stubbornly not coming down. Um, in fact, it may even be creeping back up right now. And the R factor, which is the spreadability factor, which anytime it's over one is bad, anytime below, below one is good, uh, you know, has crept back up over one. So we're watching that with caution. Um, our models suggest from a hospital perspective, we can continue to come down for some time. But the reality is, um, as a community, we need to figure out how we get the virus in control so that we are able to do a lot of the things that I know we'll talk about today, like opening up schools, like, uh, you know, uh, expanding worship services and those kinds of things. And unfortunately, we're at about as high a virus level in the community as we have been at any given time from a, a testing positivity standpoint. Wow. You know, that's fascinating because uh, we talked about this before you and I either text or on phone is that, you know, People are re- people are just done with it. <laughs> you know, they're just ready to be I done with it. I know their feeling. Trust yeah. me, <laughs> they're just done with it. And so, but it's like it's like a mental thing. It's like yeah. mentally, I'm done with it. That doesn't mean it's over. And no. one of the things that I have found with the people that I talk to, and I know Joseph has with, you know, the school board meetings and Matt and all of us, is what are the what are the numbers that really matter that we look for? Because I know on the tmc.edu, which we send people to, it's, you've got a lot of dashboards. Yeah, Some of that watch. has changed. But like, like, for example, I'll get an email from someone. They'll say, why can't we have church? The deaths are very, very low. Very few people die. So, okay, so I, I try to explain other numbers to look at. When you think about what are mm-hmm. the numbers that you would say people are listening to, because sometimes the media or the news will say, hey, there's... It's, it doesn't make you sick. Most people are asymptomatic. A lot of people don't die. And yet then we hear from other sources that, man, we're still, like you say, at a very high level. What are the things people should pay attention to? Sure. Well, if I may, let me back up a step because you sure. had a bunch of things in there. But let me talk just in general about kind of the data and, you know, the, the, the voices that are out there. Because, you know, one of the very unfortunate things about this virus has been the lack of unity that we've seen in our country. And frankly, yes. voices on really either end of the spectrum, oftentimes, frankly, trying to use the same data to make uh, wildly different, you know, 180 degree different points. Um, You know, and as in most things in life, when you get out to either extreme, neither extreme is probably right. And usually the right answer is somewhere in between. Um, And, uh, you know, that has been, to be quite honest, um, you know, a frustrating um, challenge. So let me put it in perspective a little bit. So in 2017 and 18, we had a flu season that was, you know, worse than we'd seen in a few years. It was about double the volume of patients admitted. So over an eight month flu season, we admitted about 2000 patients at Houston Methodist. Um, Of those patients, only about 2% of them needed an ICU bed over the course of eight months. Now, you know, the bulk of that flu season was four or five months. Um, The peak number of beds we ever used was 192, but again, very few ICU beds, which are the tough, tough beds to staff because, you know, one-to-one nursing versus one-to-four nursing and things like that. Um, And we had a mortality rate of about, over the last three flu seasons even, of about 2.2% once you're hospitalized. Um, So much, much lower than obviously, you know, broadly in the community, but if you're sick enough to get hospitalized, you know, about one in 50 people or so will die from the flu. With this illness, we're now at just under 5,000 people who have been admitted, you know, in about a five-month period, 
but the reality is about 3,500 of those have been admitted in, you know, about a seven week period here. Wow. Um, and so wow. wildly more explosive than the flu. So this R factor, which is how many people does it spread to dramatically higher than the flu. And so it, it, it gets out of control really quickly, but the inpatient mortality is, you know, somewhere around eight percent, over 8%. Um, so probably eight and a half, eight and two thirds percent. So it's, pushing four times as deadly as the flu once you're you're admitted. So this whole notion of, hey, not many people are dying and it's not that deadly is, is, is frankly incorrect. This is a very serious virus. And so that's one arm is that it's very serious when people get sick enough to be hospitalized that a lot of people do unfortunately die. But the other end of the spectrum is it gets, it explodes very quickly. So that you know, that 750 beds we used happened over the course from 100 up to 750 of the course of about two weeks that wow. we went up mm. that climb, you know, versus the worst flu season we'd seen in years where we were at 190 patients, almost none of whom needed ICU. Now we need, uh, in this phase, probably 15, 20% of people needing ICU. So that's, you know, we got to 180, 190 people in an ICU bed. Um, so it's a very, very different virus than the flu and minimizing it is, is really, um, you know, the wrong answer. So when you look at what the numbers are, we have to get control of the virus. There's been this um, temptation and understandably, and, and it's a, a logical thing to look at, which is hospitalizations and ICU beds, but those are lagging indicators and those are the outcome of the decisions and the things we do together as a community. And yes, we need to keep the curve flat and we need a lot to get things out of control at the hospitals. That has to happen. But boy, we came pretty darn close this last time to getting completely out of control in Houston. I mean, when we get to the numbers I'm talking about, your margin of safety or margin of error is, is almost gone um, at that point. Thankfully, we're starting to come back down. But, you know, we're still, you know, five times what we were in May. Um, so if things were to go back up tomorrow, um, there's like no margin of safety if we had that kind of expansion um, compared to the last time. So what we really all together need to do is get the virus levels back down. Right now we have somewhere on the order of 2000 cases being diagnosed across the greater Houston area. Um, obviously there's you know noise in the data because there's more testing than there was before we get into all that. But we look at that, we look at testing positivity rates and there are far more people uh, in the community right now that have the virus than have the virus in May. So we have to get that number down dramatically. We're working at the Med Center to put up a dashboard. I looked at it today with the team of, of CEOs. We looked at it with the county and city officials, really trying to say, look, what's our goal to get the virus in control? Because ultimately our goal has to be control the virus, protect the economy, and get our school kids back to school, educate our children. Those have to be ands, not ors. So they, have, they all have to be things we face on. The problem is the second and third are really hard to do if we let the virus get out of control. So we need to get virus levels back down similar to what we saw in May. So we did this after the first surge and we got the virus levels down to less than 200. I think we got even below 150 some days uh, across greater Houston. So we're still off by, you know, a factor of nine or 10, which is wow. pretty dramatic. Um, to get there is going to require that we continue to do the things we're doing from social distancing, from mask wearing, the things that have clearly bent the curve right now that have clearly resulted in hospitalizations coming down. Um, but we've got a lot, of mo lot more shared sacrifice that has to happen around social lives, social gatherings, and other places where we're seeing outbreaks to get those numbers down. Because the reality, this is just the cold, hard reality that we're dealing with is if we start with a virus level of 2000 and then advance things in the economy or in society, let's say it that way, 
quickly, whether that is schools, whether that is advancing more businesses opening, whether that's our uh, religious institutions, um, you know, we're going to get out of control pretty quickly when we put more people interacting with more people. And the, the margin of error right now is, is next to nothing compared to where we were in May when that happened. And so we've got to get back down to those kinds of levels. So we're looking at trying to get back down in that 200-ish range, something like that in cases a case positivity rate that could come down probably in the 5% range or so. Put that in perspective, New York City is at 1% right now. So they did it even in a place like New York City. Now it took pretty draconian measures obviously to get there. Um, but even with the explosion uh, of cases and deaths and everything else they had, they got that down. We peaked as a, as a community probably in the 25 to 27% range, which means with all those tests being done, we were seeing, you know, 25 to 27, 28 percent of those be positive. I had some peak days across Houston Methodist in the mid 30s where we were doing, you know, um, well, the, the peak number of diagnoses we did just at Methodist alone was 550 um, on a single day. Um, you know, that's that's two and a half times what we've got to get to as a community. Now, thankfully, we're in the 150 range now at Houston Methodist. So things have definitely come down. We're seeing more community wide still, but the numbers are coming down. Um, we're back down in the 15, 16% range as a community. So we've already made significant progress. I think we can get there. And the fundamental thing I'd like to see people following, and we're, we're, we're debating this with, this with the city and county a little bit, um, but there's something called the R. We've been talking about that since the beginning. You hear R naught or you hear RT. RT is just the, the R at a specific point in time. But just think of it real simply as the spreadability. If I get the virus, how many people do I give the virus to? If R is one, that means I give it to one. Well, if it's one, we're gonna constantly kind of, you know, have a, a chain of virus, probably relatively steady state, but it's gonna be a chain where it doesn't ever go down. And we're always kind of at risk of going back up. Um, the R, um, you know, sort of at baseline for this virus is probably three plus. So on average, probably I would, if, if we were doing nothing in the community, I would give people the virus, um, you know, three people the virus each time, which means it explodes rapidly. That's the exponential spread we talked about. And then you see what's the observed R at any given time based on all the things we do as a community. And, you know, when things got out of hand in June, we had an R probably in the one and a half to two range. So, it does, I mean, if we had a three, we'd have really been in trouble. Um, so we still had lots of things happening in the community, but it still every person was giving it to one and a half, two people. And look how things exploded out of wow. control. Right now, the R is bubbling around one. Um, today, uh, today, when I looked for yesterday, it was slightly above one. A couple of days ago, it was slightly below one. Ideally, we really would work together, make all the sacrifices we do to push the R down to 0 0.7, 0 0.8, and do that for a couple months and truly get this virus level down. Because I think otherwise, we're going to just kind of go from surge back to valley back to surge back to valley and no one wants to be there i mean that's what you're describing we've all had it with this virus right but yeah. the virus hadn't had it with us and it's uh, <laughs> it's going to keep pushing so unfortunately so matt you got a question you know, part of um, I've heard a couple of different things that one that the 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 health kind of um, long term health uh, effects of this virus um, are different than what um, I heard uh, at the very beginning. It's like the flu. You slough it off. Um, do you is there any data that suggests what the long term health effects are of, um, of yes. this? Yeah, and, and that's another place. This is is no question different than the flu for many okay. people. Now, look, there's. 
a third of people are asymptomatic, particularly the younger you go on the age spectrum, and they barely knew they had the virus. Um, that's good news. Science doesn't completely understand why we have that individual, and then we've got somebody you know, on ECMO right now, which is artificial lungs. Uh, you know, we, we're, we've got about 10 people on ECMO just at Houston Methodist right now, um, you know, many of whom will not survive that because that's kind of a, a Hail Mary pass kind of treatment for those individuals. Um, and, and, and we see that vast spectrum and science yeah. doesn't fully understand that to be quite honest. Um, and that's, you know, obviously frustrating to, to everybody, uh, first and foremost, the, the clinicians and people caring for people, but of course for our community as well as we learn about this virus. But what we're seeing is um, some long-term sequelae. So there's been a lot of concerning studies out there. Obviously people really severely ill are not getting better as rapidly. So some of them are gonna have long-term lung issues, long-term heart issues, et cetera. But we're seeing increasing number of studies, for instance, one that was done pretty recently, uh, looked at about 100 patients or so uh, and looked at their, uh, uh, looked at MRI of their heart. So they did a cardiac MRI, okay. uh, something like six weeks, I don't recall exactly, but let's call it about six weeks after they were diagnosed. About two thirds of those individuals uh, were uh, recovered at home. So they were sick, but they weren't sick enough to need hospitalization. About one third of them uh, had uh, hospitalization. Uh, the number was somewhere around two-thirds to three-quarters of them showed cardiac involvement um, by the virus um, at six weeks out. Wow. Um, you know, now how many of those will evolve into heart failure? How many of those evolved into rhythm disturbances and some other things is still unknown. Um, on, a, on an autopsy series of about 35 or 40 patients, then, these are patients who passed away, of course, the vast majority of them had cardiac involvement for instance. We're seeing uh, neurological symptoms, lots of clotting symptoms that are happening, many, many other things that are evolving. And so, I mean, we're actively working with uh, some of our outcomes team to basically talk about what's going to be our ongoing COVID clinics that are going to care for patients who may not have recovered very well or who may have long-term sequelae. So, I mean, you know, if, if you ask me, do you want this virus? You really don't. Um, you know, you may get lucky. You may be one of the people who have minimal symptoms. You could be unlucky and be in the hospital and be incredibly ill. You could be, uh, uh, you know, somebody who unfortunately has, you know, long-term sequelae of this. So the fewer people we can make sure get the virus until we get to a point of treatments. And I'm happy to talk about treatments and particularly vaccines yeah. that I do yeah. think are a promise for, you know, in the visible future now, you know, something like uh, December, January is not out of the question. When we look at that. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a great segue too. I know there's, there's a lot of talk in, in news and stuff about, Oh, I don't know the different terms like therapeutics or, you know, uh, whether they're drugs that help people once they have COVID. We've <clears> talked about some of those and some we learn, you know, over time. I remember when we talked back in March or April or whenever it was, you know, we we thought certain things about certain things. And it always amazes me to that some people, you know, politically go, look, they were wrong when they said it. it's like, you know, we're always learning. Yeah. Uh, about this, but what is the update on vaccines? That's the big, you know, we're looking forward to the V Day, <laughs> Victory Day. Yeah, for sure. And I think another follow up that so vaccine upset update, but also one of the things that I'm hearing now is like just because a vaccine is done and they ship it, that doesn't mean this thing is, is over the next day, I, I guess. And Correct. what does that look like? Huh. No, that's a great point. In fact, I read something from an epidemiologist who I, I admire and, and respect uh, recently. One of the things he wrote, he says, you know, we got to stop thinking of vaccines as this on-off switch. Yeah. It's not going to be on on-off switch. It's going to be a rheostat or a dimmer, right? Because, you know, we it, it, to to vaccinate 
you know, billions of people across the world is, you know, quickly uh, is really unprecedented. Now, the government, uh, federal government put together Operation Warp Speed. And, I, you know, this is one of the, you know, really good decisions, I think, that has been made. And it's basically a, a fast track process to where they're picking the most likely winners and they are uh, manufacturing, they're putting the money into manufacture vaccines, basically, as the vaccines are being tested, which, of course, means there wow. may be some vaccines where we spend a boatload of money and then Nothing. basically yeah. toss them all in the trash. Hmm. But if you want to actually get this out more quickly, it's really the only way to go. And so I think that make, makes tons of sense and, um, yeah. you know, is very positive. The good news is there's several, probably three or four vaccine candidates that look pretty promising when you look at the trials. There's three or four in phase three trials now. So, you know, phase one trials, a few people and you look at safety uh, phase two is now where you are uh, uh, looking at broader numbers for safety, but you're really starting to look at efficacy. It's not that you don't look at efficacy in phase one, but but that's not the principal purpose. The principal purpose is to make sure you're not, you know, giving people something with any drug that is going to have harmful effects. Um, and then as you start entering phase three, you start talking like Moderna, I think, is, is at the phase three point of around 30,000 people to get the vaccine. But they have to get a vaccine. They have to get another vaccine booster in a month. And then they need a couple months of data. And they have to, frankly, have in the two arms. It's a randomized controlled trial. So you don't know if you get it or not. They have to have you know, enough people get the virus. So you have to find places to do this where the virus is around. Um, enough people to get the virus, frankly, in the you know, control arm um, to actually know if there's a difference or not, right? If you gave it to a bunch of people and no one gets COVID in either arm, you can't, you can't prove anything. Hmm. So they're saying probably November to December, they're gonna have an answer, but they're ready to go as an example. And I think it's the same thing with the Oxford vaccine with AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca perhaps a, a couple of the others that are out there. They're all saying we're ready to go pretty rapidly after that they would hope if they, if it shows what we hope it will show, they would get an emergency use authorization and you would start to see, you know, probably high risk individuals, probably frontline, um, you know, frontline fire police, uh, you know, nurses. hospital workers, physicians, nurses, etc. cetera, uh, you know, getting vaccines and then vulnerable people in the population would be how that's going to be prioritized. But that's TBD. They've not, they've not said exactly how that will be allocated or determined. So I'm hopeful that the beginning of that rheostat can happen perhaps as early as December, more likely probably January, February. And, you know, None of that's 100%, right? When right. We may get a vaccine trial and be wildly disappointed, but all of the original data we're seeing is very encouraging. Um, you know, there's a lot of chatter in the press about waning antibody levels and those kinds of things, but they miss a lot of the point because the way the body's immune system works is you develop these antibodies, they will wane over time, um, but your, your, your body has all sorts of essential, think of it simply as sort of memory in its, in its immune system so that when it gets challenged with a, a, an antigen, which is you know, what it's seeing, the foreign object it's seeing, it can mount up an antibody response pretty well. And the data looks pretty good in humans in terms of the antibody response that's been there. They've shown in, in macaque monkeys that they can give a couple of the different um, vaccines and then challenge the monkeys with virus and they don't get the virus. So we're seeing a, a lot of positive signals. So I'm, you know, crossing my fingers, um, you know, don't, don't want to overcall it or overpromise. Certainly I don't have anything to, anything yeah. to do with those trials right now, but at least what we're seeing is pretty encouraging. So are, do you, have you heard or do you know or can you speak to, is this something that you take one time and then you're immune forever or would you have to have it every couple of years or is it like a flu shot that you have to have every year? 
Yeah, that's that's still evolving and uncertain. Um, it's still not clear yet, depending on the different vaccines, whether it's one shot or one shot plus a booster. Of course, most vaccines, if you have one shot plus a booster, you already start having some immunity, you know, with the first one, but the booster kind of puts you over the, you know, over the top, so to speak. Um, what we don't know is how that, how long that immunity will last. I think we have every reason to believe it will last for a reasonable amount of time reasonable being, you know, operative of a year or two or three, somewhere in that range. It could be longer. Um, I don't think we're seeing anything um, from what I understand. Again, this, I'm getting out of my, you know, expertise realm, but from what I'm reading, what I'm understanding as we talk to individuals, I listen to, uh, you know, some, some of the experts. Um, I don't think they, they believe that it's going to wane in just a matter of months because that obviously would be very problematic, but I think it's quite possible we're looking at a, you know, either a flu shot scenario or every couple of three year booster shot phenomenon. And it's not unheard of, of course, you know, tetanus shot, for instance, is every 10 years. If you end up with a dirty injury, it's every five, you know, you have to get a booster within five years. So it's not unheard of to do that flu shot. Of course, we do every year because the flu, the flu virus is constantly mutating and we deal with different strains. So again, unknown, um, but, but hopeful. But again, to expect that that's going to somehow, you know, solve this, it's not going to do that, but it will, it will make a difference. If we can vaccinate 5% of the population, then 10% and 15%, obviously we decrease the vulnerability in the population and ramp back down the number. So the hope is that, you know, through the first half of 2021, maybe into around this time, 2021, you could get to a critical mass of people being vaccinated, but that's a big hope. And there's a big question mark in there too, is the public's acceptance of it. If you do um, surveys right now, you get about 50% of people say they will get the vaccine. Uh, and then the rest is split between, well, I'll, I'll wait and see. And, you know, heck no, I'm not going to get the vaccine. And we need 60, 60, 60, 0%, you know, estimated. Um, nobody knows that for sure. They've not done this before, but estimated at least 60% um, herd immunity, meaning either getting the virus and having uh, immunity to it or getting vaccinated for that um, in order to, to get this thing, you know, pushed down. And, you know, and that's the other key message. I think the operative word there's going to be pushed down. I don't think the operative word is going to be this is suddenly going to vanish next year if we yeah. get a bunch of people vaccinated, um, even with some herd immunity. Obviously, if we could get 100% vaccinated, we might get there. But the reality, we're probably going to be living with this. Now, living with this where most of the population has been vaccinated and is immune and isn't going to have to worry about it as much. So it'll be much less disruptive. But I I predict our hospitals, our doctors, our nurses are going to be caring for people with COVID you know, for many, many years, just like they do with the flu. Wow. How's your staff doing? I, I know another issue is staffing. You know, hospitals are typically not staffed to be 100% full or ERs, those sorts of things. How is that working with hospitals in our area? Yeah, they're, they're hanging in there. It's been a tough time, as you can imagine, for frontline hospital workers. Um, you know, it's been a long run here. Um, you know, it, this past uh, seven, eight weeks has been extraordinarily challenging. You know, if you talked to them a few weeks ago, they were they were getting they, they were it was tough. Um, you know, they're working hard, you know, seeing mass new numbers of people come in every day, no end in sight, right? It's always worse when you're kind of seeing it and you just don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and they weren't seeing it. And frankly, they'd go out in the community and after spending their day here, you know, seeing those dynamics, and, you know, seeing very ill people 
you know, handling and helping yeah. people who are struggling, breathe, dealing with families uh, with loss um, as of, of loved ones, et cetera. And they go out and not exactly see the kinds of things we need to do in the community. That was tough um, for hospital uh, employees, for nurses, for physicians. Um, thankfully with us back down, you know, now the light at the end of the tunnel, or at least, you know, it, it, you, you start seeing it, whether we're going to actually achieve kind of an end, I don't think is realistic, but at least now, you know, it's sort of like the balloons deflating and things are a little better. We've really been pushing now to say, hey, we've got to figure out how this next month or two, we get some people some, some rest and some time off uh, because, you know, they need to recharge their batteries. Um, frankly, we are preparing as if there will be, you know, yet another surge. I think, unfortunately, we've, we've seen the, the sort of pandemic scenario play out to where I think we have pretty decent clarity around what it looks like. And there was a lot of dialogue about was it one big surge and then it just bubble along for a long time and go away eventually, you know, or did it act like a flu pandemic and you get, you know, a, a spring surge and then a huge fall surge after it kind of dies down in the summer. Neither, neither one of those clearly have happened uh, at this point. Um, I think it's kind of the third scenario that was being discussed, which is really peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys. So, you know, we've seen a first peak that, you know, frankly turned out to be a foothill of the mountain. And then we saw a big, huge mountain next. And we're coming down that, you know, the slope is much slower going down than it was going up. And we don't yet know where the valley will be. Huh. The question is going to be really, how do we control those subsequent peaks? If we go back to how we acted at the end of May, we're just going to have worse peaks. And frankly, if we start from a higher level, they're going to be much, much worse. And so we need to focus on how we all come together with unity and make sure we drive these virus levels down, you know, so that when it does start to creep back up, we all then jump in and, and react, right? Ultimately around, you know, the latter part of June into right at the beginning of July, people change their behaviors, you know, and some of that was mandated because of masks and things, but a lot of it was just people saying, oh, shoot, things are, you know, are out of control here. I've got to act differently. Well, we got to keep that going if we want to get this thing in control. And it's really, you know, inconvenient and it's really frustrating. And uh, it just is a, a unfortunate reality that we have to focus on because we cannot allow those peaks to, you know, to keep coming and keep getting bigger. Or we'll see people dying and we'll see, you know, hospitals at some point uh, overwhelmed. Um, because mm -hmm. if we start from 300 or 400 and start that next surge and peak, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be at 750 at Methodist. You're going to be at 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, That looks a lot different. Um, that's yeah. extraordinarily challenging for the staff, for the, for the hospital. And frankly, there's a lot of negative effects on the community, obviously, as, you know, it basically pushes out other care, um, you know, that, that you just simply across the country can't expand um, rapidly like that at every institution. It's just not possible. Have your, have your frontline workers seen uh, many with diagnosed positive cases? Well, the good news, so we actually just published a study. Um, it's online. You can look at it and accepted by one of the journals um, uh, that was looking early on when we started doing surveillance testing back in April as we were still learning about this virus. And what we saw was we, were, we had some little hot spots on kind of frontline areas with four or five percent positivity in asymptomatic people. Um, but in kind of other patient facing areas, less than 1% and in non patient facing areas, 0%, um, you know, which implied to us, hey, we need to do better education, better communication, better work around some of the protective activities. Um, and uh, since then, we've done surveillance and actually keep it very, very low. So the good news is mm. we don't see, you know, any significant number of patient to employee or patient to caregiver kinds of communication. 
Um, the challenge we face, like every business does, is occasionally we'll see employee to employee transmission. You know, people get in the break, you know, people come in, they don't realize they have it. They let their guard down in a break room or someplace like that when they're not wearing protection uh, and can give it to each other, thankfully, in small numbers. Um, but, you know, we have 26,000 employees, so our, we're, we're seeing our employees live in the community just like everybody else, and we're seeing some employees get that, and, of course, we have to care for them and, and uh, you know, keep them out of work. But uh, by and large, we've been able to do that very, very effectively. You know, and we have a very educated workforce. What There's actually a couple of very interesting studies, Mass General Brigham, which is what they changed their name, but it's what they call, they changed the name of the, the overall organization, which is a, a, a conglomeration of a whole bunch of hospitals in the kind of Boston area. But the two anchors are the Mass General and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, they did a study looking at some of the transmission they had in-house and you could see it go up and then they put a masking order in for their uh, staff and it started to level off. And then they put a masking in for all visitors and especially for all patients and they saw it come down. Wow. And so it's why you see so many graphics everywhere around, you know, both people should be wearing a mask. I mean, there's a whole series of ones we use, which is, you know, not okay, you know, if neither <laughs> has it, a little better if one has it, a little better if the other, you know, or about the same if the other has it. This is the way you do it is, you know, with both people wearing a mask. So we see even in very high prevalence situations, when you do the masking, it works. There's no question the data su suggest it works. And, you know, when I talk about frustrating things in society, you know, there's nothing more frustrating to a group of physicians and, and healthcare workers than the whole debate about masks, which, you know, frankly, got off on the wrong foot back, you know, in February, March, as, as you know, the CDC and others said, oh, hold off, don't do this. But as the science emerged and it became really clear that it worked, unfortunately, it became a politicized message. And, you know, some of the very same people who were, you know, in the kind of damn the torpedoes, let's open things up phase were also the people sitting there saying, but don't wear a mask while you do it. And those are kind of intellectually, you know, at, at odds with each other. Um, you know, the right answer, like with everything, well, the right answer is wear a mask and the right answer is not damn the torpedoes and the right answer is not shut everything down. The right answer is let's huh. do things together and thoughtfully. And, uh, you know, that's what we've been really trying to do. Let's do it data driven and let's do it uh, very thoughtful. Well, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a really good word for people is thinking right. about <clears throat> from you saying, here are the key things that we need to do to list keep it in check best we can and that's wearing a mask and that's when you're not able to social distance right and and, and pretty much when you're indoors i know businesses now mandate masks but when you're outside and you're able to social distance you know you're okay is is pretty much the case yeah is that correct? you know there are some places starting to do more but i mean my feeling in general if you're outdoors and, and let's be clear if you're outdoors walking exercising jogging you know those kinds of things walking around the neighborhood with family, um, you know, I don't think a mask is certainly necessary in those times. If you're talking about an outdoor setting where you're sitting with other people, socializing, I mean, we need to minimize big groups, but you know, if you're talking about a small group of people, you need to be pretty well distanced if you're not gonna be wearing a mask, even outdoors. If you're gonna be close by, just wear the mask. Indoors, if you're gonna be with other individuals now outside of your, your kind of home family unit, I really recommend that you have a mask on when you're interacting with those individuals. I mean, what, what we are seeing is the most common story of where we see lots of people getting ill. It's when they let their guard down. It is social gatherings. It's family functions. You know, it's all of those kinds of things. But, you know, obviously bars we heard all about, uh, but bars are closed down now. 
um, you know, those are the challenging times and it's human behavior. So for example, you take four, four groupings of a family together who live all over Houston and you bring them to somebody's house for a birthday party and, you know, you celebrate the birthday. Well, every one of those groups of people, unless they've been 100%, you know, isolated at home, which this day and age almost nobody is, um, they've each got their own sort of array of, of people that they are communicating with or, or interacting with. And so you've now magnified that dramatically. And those family units come in and they sit there and they sit around the dinner table and the masks are off and they celebrate and they get too close and, you know, they share plates and utensils and bathrooms and all the things that happen, right? And you, you see, I mean, most of them do fine. And every so often, one of those families has a big outbreak and we'll see six, seven, eight members of a family. I've got way too many stories of husband and wife in an ICU. I've got, you know, one story wow. where we have, a, uh, you know, the wife has already passed away and the husband is so desperately ill in ICU. I, you know, I'm worried, um, you know, and they're teenage children at home. Um, those oh. are really tragic stories. And oh. you look back to how those things happen in many of those cases. And it is, you know, it is letting someone, letting one's guard down. Well, so uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we're, we're going to break this podcast really up into two. So much good information here. And so we've been talking about where we are on the virus and what's going on and the things that we can do. Uh, the second half that we're going to share next week really is all about regathering of worship and a lot about schools and how we get back and get our kids to school and why it's priority and what we can do to get there. So I'm glad to have uh, Joseph with us uh, both weeks on, on all of that. And uh, it, it, it'll be exciting. So Join us to continue the second half of the conversation. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Joseph Clam. Hey, and this is Pod Have Mercy. I don't have a microphone in front of me. <laughs>